funny you said that. My dad and I, we took uh, Finn out for fishing for the first time, and he said he can't. And he mm-hmm. goes, well, there's no, there's no such thing as you can't. You can't. You can do anything you want. You put your mind to. Let me show you. Yep. That's all you need. Well, that, that last part, though, let me show you. Yeah, let me show you. You can with my help right now. Right. Right? So, so. Well, I, I think to, to both of your points, it's incredibly important that we as fathers live that exact same model for our children. Because if I'm telling my child that, but I'm taking the easy way out, mm. or they see me quit, or they yeah. see, and, and and whether it's beliefs, whether it's relationships, whether it's fine, whatever it is, you can actually become the agent of doubt for the person you're trying to influence. And I, that's a huge responsibility what I say, that we all bear. Mm-hmm. What you do yeah, means so much. So what you say, I can't hear. Yeah, I like, I like I like what you said though about doing doing what's required, uh, not just your best. Uh, I'm I'd like to add a, a caveat to that though. I think there's there's a twofold to that, right? So if if what's required is less than your best, then then you always demonstrate your best. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. In, in those situations, and point. I think I think if if what is your best is less than what's required, you always demonstrate what's required. Um, you always do ten percent more. Uh, something we talked about in the past and and that might require you to 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 recruit help or you know yeah. or somebody to somebody to to aid you in areas that you can't deliver hmm. um and and that's how you learn to deliver um that's how you learn how to stretch your capacity you know things of yeah. that nature so uh, i think that's really cool i think it's awesome yeah and so and that, that was kind of just a, a big picture of, of training and everything we went through and uh, it, it was a really, really cool thing. Uh, Dad actually pinned my badge on too, so that oh, was nice. that was pretty cool. To, what to rank have that was experience. he when that happened? He was a captain. He was a captain. Yeah, already. he was a captain okay. when I got on. Um, so, kind of moving forward in the timeline, I spent four and a half years uh, in the inner city on midnight shift. Uh, loved every moment of it. Of course, it is the same. It tells area you everything you know about Daniel. Oh, loved yeah. every moment. Oh, of I, it. I did. <laughs> in the nitty gritty. Um, matter know, of everything. fact, when when I end up getting out of patrol and stuff, I. I end up almost like in depression. It was, it was bad. Um, but it means the part of town I grew up in, it's where I went to school. It's where I went to church. And and so I was familiar. I I had friends in that part of town since before I was even on the department. And and that's just, that's where my heart was. And that's where I enjoyed policing. But you were there to make a a difference and an impact. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Throughout that time and that, that four years, you, you helped people out in in situations that would have been like, that would wreck their world. Yeah. You know, or whatever. I don't know if you have any stories or anything you want to add to it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And to that end, the story I already told about the boys coming over in this traffic stop, um, it's going to evolve and you're going to see kind of um, the depth of the relationship that I had with everybody. So um, just kind of fast forwarding through that, uh, getting up to, I just got transferred over to homicide mm-hmm. and about a decade earlier, my dad got diagnosed with um, some heart disease and had four-way bypass. So one year, my, my grandfather had three-way bypass. The next year, my dad has four-way bypass. And the next year, his older brother, my uncle, has five-way bypass. Um, and so... It's not a good record for them to keep breaking. It's no. not. It's not. Um, heart, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to one-up uh, you in this area anymore. I'm not aspiring to be part no, of the club. No. Uh, yeah, right. So uh, with that, we're, we're, we're almost a decade past that point now. And it, going through that a decade earlier was very stressful. But fast forward, and, and so I'm, I'm in homicide now. Dad and I go up to Michigan and to see his family for Thanksgiving. 
on the way back down, we have a two hour conversation and dad just looks at me and says, I'm not doing well. Like the doctors told me if I'm open on the table at the hospital in surgery, they still couldn't save me. I said, so I told the doctor, like, you're telling me I can go sit down and wait and die or I can keep doing what I'm doing. I said, yep, that's exactly it. Dad said, well, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. So he refused to take retirement, refused to do, you know, just sit around and he, he stayed active. Matter of fact, two months before he passed away, he took his doctor's son, a Boy Scout troop, uh, caving. And he just stayed active up until the very moment. Uh, dad was in court the morning he passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my parents' 31st anniversary when, when dad passed away. Mm-hmm. And so, crazy. um, yeah, my, my family is, we were talking about this earlier. My, my personality is really dry and my family's really dry. So when, when dad passes away, I get a call from my brother and he's just like, Hey, dad's having a heart attack. I'm like, all right, I'll call everybody. <laughs> and so we hung up. I called my sisters down in Florida called uh, my, my other brother who's in Chattanooga and was like, Hey, go get mom and go to this hospital. Cause that's where they're going to take dad. He's having a heart attack. I said, okay, he, he was clear. So then I called mom and I was like, Hey, Ben's on the way to pick you up so he can take you to the hospital. Dad's having a heart attack. So then I called my younger brother back. I'm like, Hey, like what, what's going on? Where are you guys? Like, well, we're still at your house. And I was like, why are you in my house? Like, Oh, they're doing CPR still. It's like, what do you mean still? Like how long have you guys been doing CPR? Like, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, my sister's married to a guy in the Navy. So I called her. I'm like, Hey, dad's not going to make it. Like, this is, this does not end well. I'm just letting you know, based on what right. I do for a living. Yeah. Yeah. No bueno. Yeah. So, uh, get to the hospital. And actually my dad was with my youngest brother who was an EMT and a paramedic friend. And so they, they started CPR and, get to the hospital and I run into the paramedic in the parking lot. And I'm just like, Hey, you know, like, what's the word? And he's like, Daniel, it's, I said, no, no, no. I know that it, that how this ends. It's like, I was just asking if they called it yet. It's like, no, no, they hadn't called it yet. I said, okay. So I go inside and I give my brother a hug and I'm like, you good? He's like, yeah, I'm good. You good? Yeah, I'm good. He's like, why are we still hugging? I don't know. So, <laughs> so, so we let go and, um, and, and from that, they actually took my brother and I into a side room and, and the doctor came out and all the doctor just, I was, um, at work. So I was in uniform. Mm. Uh, and so the doctor just looked at, just made eye contact and he just said, I'm sorry, we tried everything. And he didn't know what else to say. And then he, he left the room. So when my mom got there, I actually had to go out and tell mom dad had passed away. So, mm. but that was in February. Two months or three months before that in November, he and I have this two hour conversation and it was like, son, I'm not doing well. Here's where the documents are. I saved up uh, $10,000 for cash funeral expenses. This is where it's at in the safe. Here's, you know, I have a list of things that I want to go to each kid. Here's where the list is located. I want you to make sure that they get these items and the, the, here's the significance of these items I'm giving each one of the kids. And, and through that conversation, uh, oh, and the other caveat was um, I'd appreciate if you didn't talk to your mom about it because there's nothing anybody can do about it. And I don't want her to worry needlessly. Mm. What's going to happen is going to happen. Mm. And, and we all know what the state of my health is, um, but I don't want her to worry needlessly. So um, just Spoken know these like are the things man. you need to do. Yep. And, and at that point is when I kind of began to feel the responsibility of like, you know, I have, I have my own family. I have my own wife. I had three kids at the time my wife was pregnant with our fourth kid and i just felt 
hugely responsible for the entire family at this point. I'm like, Oh my word. Like, like I'm really a man now. Like, and that is just kind of how I felt. And and it was never really said, but that, that's exactly how, how I took this conversation. Well, that, that mantle of leadership was being passed on that name, you know, like, yeah. And, and dude, I'm, I'm telling there's something about the way, and I, I, I knew your dad and I have a ton of respect for him. Um, just incredible guy and y'all are very similar very very similar yeah. in so many ways it's kind of crazy um except you don't have the mustache which he was not. always rocking well, like <laughs> but uh that whole thing though like just the prep you know we, we talk about what it what does it mean to be a real man and i don't know that it necessarily means that you do all that stuff that he did but i think that there's certainly the heart behind that certainly says a lot about him you know yeah. like and he's he's facing his own mortality and all he's thinking about is his wife and his kids. Like his wife is like, I don't want her to um, lose any happiness, any joy over these however many months or years it might be. Who knows? He's still playing the protector. He's still yeah. he's still playing his role, yeah. you know. And yeah. he's handing down that role to the next to the next generation. He's making sure there's not a gap. Yeah, right. and that's yeah. and that's what's that's, that's what's huge. really cool. I mean, you're you're like at that point, there's nothing else for you to worry about, right? Right. But he was still worried about the future and made sure that it was seamless. Mm-hmm. And you got it. Yeah, you know yep. that, that yep. that's what was cool. Yep. Yeah, you, you got it, man. You, he didn't even have to tell you. It wasn't like Daniel. I'm gonna need you to step up. There was, there was none of that. It was you know you felt it right. You're yeah. like here, hand no, it, it to just me. I'll take a, it. This is what you need to know. That's right. Right. That's uh, right. And from that, you took. Hey, okay, okay. It's time to take care of mom. It's time to make sure mom's taken care of. My family's taken care of. I'm gonna carry the name. Yeah, Did and it. it's cool shit. And, uh, and kind of with that dad passes away and it was like 27 or 28 days later, we had our fourth child and we've had a lot of weird family coincidences. Like almost every time we have a kid, somebody decides to move on to the afterlife. Um, I say that and, and and I'll give you, I'll give you an example. When, uh, when my second child was born, my dad called his mom said, Hey, Tobin's born. Here's, here's when he was born. Here's how much he weighed. And she wrote everything down on the pad next to the um, next to the phone, and she laid down and passed away. Wow! And so I I leave the hospital and I go down to Target, and I'm getting something, and my dad calls me all upset, and he's like, "Mom's dead." I'm like, "Whoa!" Like like my kid's mom, my mom. <sighs> Or your mom. I need you to be a little more yeah. specific. <laughs> mom. Like, my mom. I said, I am very so name. sorry, but I feel better about the situation <laughs> yeah. as a whole. Like, my wife had just given birth. And- oh, thank God. Out of the three moms, that was the best one. <laughs> wow. So, oh, my uh, goodness. So, for the first couple of years, I couldn't remember my son's uh, date of birth, so I would look up my grandmother's obituary. Oh, oh wow. Like, I kid you not. Um, oh, God. Um, so, it, we had some weird coincidences like that, and so it was just one of those where the Sunday before Dad passed away, he actually told someone at our church, I don't think I'll be here to see Eli born. And so, he passed away, and 28 days later, Eli was born. Wow. Um, so, it was it was a weird... They say that you know. You know when you go. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, it was it was kind of like a weird emotional time because I had just lost dad and then we just had a new kid and it was this man, it was like an immediately this weird feeling of like my son will never know my father. Like mm. I have three other kids that at least got to meet him. Um my, my third child doesn't remember him, my older two do. And it's like, but I now have somebody who doesn't know anything beyond me as far as the family goes. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of took that responsibility as well to teach him 
this is who your grandfather was. This is who my grandfather, because I, I got to know my grandfather. This is who my grandfather was. Yeah. Um, so, so that all happens when I'm in homicide. And then I get promoted to sergeant. I get back out on the street. And I, I run into Dominique in court one day. I'm like, Dominique, man, like, he's, this, he's the kid from the traffic stop. Yeah. I'm like, you've got to get out of the game. Like, you're here in court again because you're in the game. You just had a daughter. Nobody wins the game. Like you end up in jail or you end up dead. Like those, those are your, those are your endings, man. Like I care too much about you. Let you keep doing this. You got to get out. Any help you need, you hit me up. Like I, I've got you, man. Like, and so about two weeks later, we get a call and there's a drive-by shooting and I'm the second guy on the scene of the shooting. And I walk up and it's Dominique mm. and he's on the, the front porch of an abandoned house. And it was not a drive-by shooting. Like it was called in. It was an execution. And, and Dominique had been killed. And so we tape it off. You know, community shows up. Dominique's family shows up. And police are on one side of the tape. Everybody else is on the other side of the tape. I walk directly under the tape and straight to Dominique's family. Uh, because his brother is one of the kids that came over to my house too. And then two of his cousins. So I, I know the family. I know the mom. And when I walk over to the family, since you can't see me, I'm like 5'8 with my shoes on. Um, his brother's like six, four. So his brother actually picks me up off the ground and is hugging me and he's crying. He's like, Francis, man, they killed my brother. They killed my brother. So I talked to him for a few minutes. I talked to his mom for a few minutes. And then I go back under the tape to talk to homicide investigators. And then I come to go back out under the tape. Again, no one else has crossed the, this tape barrier. Right? So I go to go back out and a rookie stops me. He's like, Hey man, I tried to talk to his family, but they basically cussed me out and said they would only talk to you. I want to know, like, why will they only talk to you? And, and I explained to him, I said, look, man, maybe 10 years from now, you'll have a relationship like this. I said, I've known this family since before I was on the police department. My wife baked this kid cookies. Mm. We fed him dinner. We played video games together. Yeah. I said, I, I have a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. I always treated them respectfully. I've taken them to jail because that was my job, but I did it. The, I did it in the right manner and I treated him with respect. Um, I said, and his mom recognizes that and she understands that I said, so I've all, if I told him I was going to cut him a break, I cut him a break. If I told him they were going to jail. They went to jail. I said, I kept my word. So 10 years from now, if you keep your word, you might have a relationship with somebody where you're the guy that they'll talk to. So, but I'm going to tell you something. It's incredibly important you keep your word. You don't mistreat people and you don't lie to them because those things can happen. And when they do, not only does it erode your credibility, but it tarnishes that badge that you wear on your chest Absolutely. and it erodes our credibility. Right. And I went back out under the tape and I, I continued to talk to his family. And, uh, and then that was just a real pivotal moment, even in my own mind, where I was like, you know, I have a legitimate relationship with this family. And I had always interacted with them, but I just kind of assumed that like every other police officer would have the same type of relationship or they would talk to them the same way. And I really began to realize through that process that that it wasn't that way. Um, I want to ask you some some tougher questions. Yeah. Since we're, since we're getting into that. So what's your opinion of... Like, that's a pretty intense thing. You know, that's a pretty deep 
relationship that you have. And I don't think it, just knowing you, I would bet that that's not the only family that, you know, like to some level like that, maybe they weren't all at your house playing video games, but yeah. you've, you've gone out of your way to create relationships and to understand people and just knowing who you are. Um, and you've used your role in the, as a Lieutenant now to really make society better. What, what percentage of people do you think in the position that have a badge on their shirt approach that the same way and i know you can't speak for the whole country but like just in your however many years you've been with the police department 14 14 years of experience personal experience like what is your feeling on that right now i think the vast majority of officers want to do the job the right way um i I thought they wanted to do it for the money oh man the money is (laughs) outrageously low uh, but, uh, no, I, I really, I do believe they want to do the job the right way. Um, 99 plus percent of the officers I deal with, that's why they get into the profession. I think some of, some of the complications you face are a lot of my desire to make contact with people and to build relationships came from my background. Uh, and I kind of skipped over at dad's funeral, uh, Dad and I had this ongoing argument, like, why are you doing the things you're doing? You're not making the money other people are making. You know, you're, you're not getting the recognition you could be getting. You're not getting the respect you could be getting. And I just, I never could wrap my head around it. So when he died, over 2,000 people came to his funeral. And I can remember standing down front. I had my hand on his chest and looking at the people. And I just knew at that moment, it clicked. And it's like, this is what dad was doing. He didn't care about the money or the prestige. Like he was investing in people. He literally invested his life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, rem- I remember that funeral yep. very vividly. Yeah. We came down and, and uh, to, to sh- just show our support. And there was a lot of people. I, I could not believe. And yeah. it was just a, a statement and a testament of what your father did in his life to make that much of an impact. It was just inspiring to, to see. It was really cool. And, and I, I, I say this in a respectful manner, but one of the best things that ever happened for me was my father's passing. It's not one of the best things that ever happened to me by any means, but just as far as for me and helping me understand that and changing the course of my life to say, what can I do to invest in other people? Uh, it, it really kind of, it, it was another one of those moments where it transferred a burden to me uh, that I didn't have beforehand. Um, and, and so I, I think that's a huge piece that officers need to understand is you may be here for eight, 10, 12 hours a day because it's your job, but you have to go beyond just doing a job and build relationships with people. Uh, you have to go beyond just doing your job and you have to treat people the exact same way you would want to be treated. It's like the whole golden rule thing. Like, yeah. it, it almost applies to life in every yeah, area. It did. Absolutely. And it's weird if you do that consistently, you earn a reputation mm-hmm. for doing that consistently, and you build trust. Right? And, and that's really the key to a lot of it is, can I trust this person? Can I trust this officer? Can I trust whoever it is, my father? Well, and ultimately, if you have enough people of any people group or any whatever kind of name we want to put on it. Let's just say police officers. If I have enough individuals, people that I trust, then ultimately at some level I trust the group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So it comes down to that personal relationship. Yeah. 
I feel like you were trying to ask or add something. I have a question I want to ask, but I do too. Yeah, so I, I, I'm sure we got several questions just just because of the nature of what's going on right now. But uh, one of the big things that I took from what you've been talking about, just from your story, is your upbringing really shaped your character mm-hmm. yes. as an individual. Yeah. Um, and what I took from that is you weren't necessarily censored from things. No. I imagine growing up in the inner city, you saw drugs, uh, you saw crime, you saw things that happened, you, you saw an autopsy at 12 years old. Um, how do you feel about the level of censorship that we're trying to push right now in society about how you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't see this, you can't do that and stuff like what's your, what's your take on that as far as a detriment? What's, what's going to happen? Cause it, and I'll just tell you the reason I ask is because I'm a firm believer that when we started saying, Hey, we, we need to remove these consequences cause they're too severe. Now we have a bunch of spoiled ass kids out there that don't feel like they need to respect authority or things of that nature. But how did how did your 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 character really shape your view on censorship? If you can't handle a uh, stressful situation in a controlled environment, or see or come into contact with something you disagree with in a controlled environment, how on earth are you going to handle it? when you get out into the real world where it's not a controlled environment and and you can no longer control the situation. So what I try to do with my own kids is I try to teach them you're going to see or, or hear or whatever the case is, things we may not agree with, but this is why we don't agree with them. This is how we handle it. And so instead of trying to absolutely, I mean, I don't expose my kids like crazy stuff, but instead of trying to shield every single individual thing, it's, Hey, this is what our family stands for. This is what we do. You need to learn how to handle this because one day you're going to be on your own mm. and I expect you to be able to handle a situation. Yep. So I, I think when we get into the arena of removing consequences mm. for bad behavior or bad decisions, then we're enabling those behaviors and those decisions because true freedom is the ability to fail or make mistakes, but it's also accepting the responsibility of that failure or that mistake. And I, I think what we're doing is we're teaching these generations that are beneath us that you don't have to accept any level of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when it it's comes to accepting, yeah. Yeah. well, when it comes to accepting personal responsibility, I'm talking to the level of, I look at a situation that I was involved in, I'm 99% right, but am I willing to own the 1% I wasn't? Mm. Or am I just going to sit here and keep telling you how I'm 99% right? Mm. I'm more right Therefore, you're the one that needs to work on something. Right. Am mm-hmm. I willing to own any percent? Because in any situation I deal with, rarely am I ever 100% right. Sure. So am I willing to look at, at any situation and accept my portion of responsibility instead of pointing fingers or pushing it off and, and say, okay, how can I learn? How can I grow? But instead of that, what we're doing is, is we're taking all responsibility from people yep. and not letting them learn anything about the situation at all. See, I agree with that. Uh, and, and just to, to my question, that that's the, the censorship that we put is more detrimental than anything because we don't outline the consequences and make them very clear. Because And I'll just take it to, the, to my specific household because that's what I control. My kids are very clear on the consequences. Um, just, just like in society today, you, you, you have the, the freedom of speech, right? You, you have the, fr- that, that's absolutely true no matter what, but that doesn't mean you won't get punched in the face. Yeah. Right. You can say whatever the hell you want to say, but understand that if you say something out of line, there's a chance you get punched in the face just cause you have the freedom to do it. 
does not mean that there aren't freedom consequences succeed, attached freedom to it. Fail. Yeah. 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 So, so, and that's, and that's, that's kind of my thing. I think sometimes we censor things so much that kids walk out there and go, Oh, well, I've never seen that kind of consequence stuff like that. I don't own it. That's, that's not my consequence. I don't identify with that consequence. Well, and the other side of it too, that I wanted to bring up is that, you know, as I'm, as I'm listening to what you're saying, Daniel, as far as the whole, I, I've been very rarely am I a hundred percent right. I think everybody could say that. Yeah. Right. Most of the time you're probably not a hundred percent right. And that's on both sides of anything. Right. So how much more effective would the conversations be that we're having nowadays? If we, if everybody approached the conversation with that understanding, if everybody were like, instead of you're wrong, F you, you know, no, you're wrong. F you. And then it just becomes a, you know, a pissing match back and forth. We don't accomplish anything as opposed to, I think of, you know, Josh mentioned in his own household. I think about my own marriage, Mm -hmm. like the times when we're like, screw you, no, screw you. We don't accomplish anything. We don't accomplish anything. Now, when we actually stop and say, you know what? I thought this, but I didn't take into consideration this. And that's my fault. Mm -hmm. And then the other party says something very similar. You know what? I didn't take into consideration this. That's my fault. How much more productive is that conversation to, to reaching some kind of solution, right? Can, I, I just think about like what's going on in our society right now. If everybody just came to the table with, there's a 1% chance that I'm wrong about something, and there's a 1% chance that you're wrong about something, let's talk about those things. Or our perspective's different, let's talk about those things. Right. As opposed to just, you should know everything that I know, and and I should know everything that you know. And, and like, let's just fucking fight about it and see what happens it's like reading minds i know what you know you think before i even i mean you don't have that that ability even beyond that i think you really get into interpreting someone else's intent yeah like how on earth do you and can you interpret someone else's intent without actually having a legitimate conversation about sure hey what were you thinking like what was going through your head and and in policing what i found is if you ask a group of people what happened and they all tell you the exact same thing you have a problem. Something's up. Yeah, right. so, like something's wrong. Because because sure. what happens is, is when I see an event, I bring all of my baggage with me and that gets filtered through everything I've ever experienced in life. So if, if the core message is the same, but I get little differences, that's pretty normal. And so, so what you learn is there's what actually happened, there's what person one says happened, and there's what person two said happened. And what actually happened somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times if we can have those conversations with somebody, if we can reach across the aisle in a, in a difference and actually have a conversation, yeah. we get closer to the middle of what actually happened. And and what actually happened could be closer to one side or the other, mm-hmm. but we can come closer together on what really happened mm-hmm. and and stop pointing fingers and let me tell you why you're wrong. And I mean, if the police are wrong, they need to own it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to tell you right now, the situation up in Minneapolis, the police were wrong. Right. All right. There, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody disagrees yeah. with that. No, no. You know? and, and that needs to be dealt with. They need to be prosecuted. I, I, there's no problem about that. But the police need to own that. And then the other situations where the police are wrong, they need to own it. What's your feeling about Atlanta? Just, just from a police perspective, what's your feeling about the Atlanta situation that just happened here recently? Man, the Atlanta situation is a huge can of worms. Um, it, it, it really, really is. And it's as far as the officers walking out, uh, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't happened in other places before now. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, me personally, I swore an oath to protect my community. Um, I didn't swear an oath to protect my community. If, if, 
if someone treats right. me right, if right, right or yeah. right no that that wasn't what i did yeah um i swore an oath to to be there and to help the people that need help because the reality is the vast majority of people in your city need some level of help on on a, not the same people i'm not saying that but i'm saying on a daily basis yeah. and if i walk out and i'm that help just because somebody else mistreated me yeah. then i have betrayed my oath and, and again it goes mm. back to what we talked about in the beginning I, I can't look myself in the mirror if I betray my oath. That's just my personal. And the vast majority mm. of people in your community are good. Right. Yeah. And they deserve just like to be the vast protected. majority of any group community. is good. Well, and, ju- yeah. and just like the situation, um, you know, that happened in Atlanta. We, and, and Cam, we were talking about this earlier. Yeah. If that cop would have let that guy go and he would have drove off drunk as he was and hit somebody and killed a family of four or whatever hit my family's car and killed my kids and stuff like that. I would have went to jail cause I'd have killed him if he wasn't already dead. Um, you know, but then that cop would have, would have been sitting back in that situation. And then I think about it in terms of if I was that cop and I was sitting in that situation and this guy obviously overpowered both of them. I've been trying to talk to him for 20 something minutes. No, 40 minutes, 40 something minutes. He, decides he wants to fight me once we finally get to the point where you are so intoxicated that we don't have a choice but to take you off the streets to keep the streets safe because my oath is to keep my community safe. I let this guy, that I can't, I can't guarantee any kind of safety I let this guy go out here and drive. Then he tries to steal my weapon. He fights me, tries to steal one of my weapons and stuff. Like, I, I'm sorry, but I don't understand how anybody in the right state of mind could possibly defend that guy. I'll give you another one. I can't remember where it was, but um, just in the last day, officers responded to a murder suspect's house. He opened fire on the officers. The officers returned fire and killed him, and people are calling for the officers to be charged with murder. So at what point, and I'm just, I'm going to, I could guess, I could speculate as to the race of both sides of that thing that you just said because of our current state and society and and the narrative that's out there. Not that a lot of that's not real, not that racism's not real, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but at what point is it a, a, a police officer playing his, not playing his role, like people just taking responsibility for their actions is ultimately what it comes down to. Like it has nothing to do with, I, I feel a hundred percent confident that the police officer in Atlanta would have treated that guy the same way, regardless of his color. In my opinion, I watched the whole video. I'm like, he didn't treat him. Uh, it, I mean, he treated him way better than I would have. Oh, the yeah, way that no, he, w- it would have been a lot quicker if it was me. If I was oh, a yeah. cop, he'd have been in the car a lot. Quicker. He gave him every benefit of the, I mean, every possible no, sure. scenario he could create nothing to do. If he was a, if he was a white redneck, yeah. He'd have been in the Same car. Exact just thing. As, God, I'm sorry. I, that so guy. when do we stop going, you know, this is because of this color, this and this color, that, and or because he's a cop and, and he's a criminal, and we're just going like, this is just, this is just a count, this is personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. So a couple things in that arena. One, I would caution people to be careful what you look for because you will always find it. If you want to look for injustice, you'll find injustice. Mm-hmm. If you want to look for people doing good, you'll find people doing good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the other part, kind of separate from that, but how long is society going to tolerate it? I mean, that, that that's really, really my question. When you really look at statistics and you look at uh, demographic breakdowns and you, and you look at all these different pieces, I, I think when you look at the issue as a whole that, that we're in right now, there are some people with some very valid concerns 
and there does need to be some level of conversation concerning those those topics. Okay, yeah. uh, we are things as bad as they were a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, twenty years. They're not. They're, 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 they're just, just exposed. Not. Differently. Are we where we need to be? Not completely. No. Right. So we still have work to do, and I, I think you need to look at situations on an individual level on both sides of the coin. Sure. Right. So you look at a a, a suspect as an individual, you look at the officer as an individual. If you come across an officer who's racist, they have to go off the police department. I mean, there's, there's just no two ways about that. There's no room for that in the profession of policing. Yeah. Right. But when you, when you have someone who chooses to interact negatively with the police, then I mean, how do you, how do you handle that? I was just, matter of fact, there was a situation in my household today dealing with my 13 year old daughter. And then I finally just told her, I said, honey, part of the problem is, is you run around, not literally, but metaphorically, poking people in the eye. And the moment you get poked in the eye, you want to cry and claim victimhood. So mm. That's not the way the world works. Mm, right. You can't keep poking people in the eye. And then when someone finally stands up to you and pokes you in the eye, you say, oh, they're wrong. And here's a whole list of reasons why. So in some form, you just kind of. Well, I think we get a lot of that nowadays, too, because everybody's got a cell phone and everybody wants to have the coolest video lately. And so there's all these people out there trying to instigate and instigate and instigate. And I've seen a lot of things recently where it's like they're trying to spark a fire yeah. with a police officer. And it's like, how much patience do you want them to have before they either react, but not even reacting as a police officer, react as a person? Yeah. Like, you can only poke me so many times before I'm something's yeah. going to give, man. I, th I think another huge part of the problem is the average person in America doesn't understand how the system is supposed to work. So they don't understand that by and large, the system isn't working correctly. Uh, and what I mean by that is when you look at police officers specifically, the main function of their job, they're called law enforcement. They enforce laws. I don't write the laws. Mm. I don't make the laws. I don't even agree with all of the laws. Your elected officials make the laws. Correct. And then your Wait, judges what? and your so you 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 get arrested. My job is to take you before the court. That's my job. I take you before the court and I bring evidence and, and give it over to the court system. So the court system, you have you have constitutional rights underneath that system. You can have a jury trial, you can waive that right, the judge can decide. I mean, you, you can plead guilty. There's a whole list of things that go on. So ultimately a judge or a jury or yourself through you know confessing determine guilt or innocence then from that proceeding the judge has a a guideline to which he can sentence you to all right so to me you look at the situation and you say are there laws that are racist in intent and if there's if there are laws that are racist in intent then they need to be dealt with and you, you need to contact it. your legislators sure. and have them deal with those laws yeah. Then if there are not laws that are racist and intent, you also, you know, then, then you're in good shape. Right. But when you look at sentencing, is there a disparity in sentencing when it comes to race? Well, if there is, you need to deal with the judges and the court system because they're the ones that handle that. Then you look at, is there a disparity in the enforcement piece? Uh, and if there is, then you deal with the police department or the police officers on that issue. And I think a lot of what you see right now is they've kind of intertwined and combined all of those issues and put them solely on the police department. It's the closest thing to them, and they're ignorant to everything else. Right, yeah. So 
and and as a lieutenant, and and this is probably a little bit of ignorance on my side. How many how many officers actually like report to you? When I was over the downtown area, I, I had roughly 70 to 80 officers and or sergeants that reported to me. Okay. Uh, now I'm over in technology. I've got like five people. But yeah. I actually now I actually oversee all of the body cameras, laptop computers, in-car cameras, all of that type of stuff is what I do now. So how, how do you and this is this is just playing devil's advocate, right? So from based off of the the all the conversations and stuff that's going on right now, which I think a lot of it's garbage because I think most police officers are good. My, my uncle's a state trooper. He was a state trooper in Arizona and he probably let people off more than he should have uh, just because he was same, same as you. He went into it to make a difference. He went into it to make an impact. How do you keep your guys, especially younger guys that may come in there beating on their chest with a little bit of power as a police officer from, um, I guess, assuming that certain individuals, like let's say you walk into a black community, automatically assume there's a bunch of criminals in that, that community. And that may not be the fact that just may be something that they're trying to paint, but how do you keep those guys in line from going to listen, you need to assume positive intent until you have a real good reason why not. So it's not quite exactly the scenario you just set up, but when I was a Sergeant, I had an officer call me and said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm on this traffic stop. There's a, a lady here who won't sign for a ticket. Well, that generally gets translated into you're going to jail. So, and I told him, I said, didn't take her to jail. Yeah. He said, well, she wants to talk to you. I said, yeah, take her to jail. And then she can talk to me. That's not a problem. I'm more than happy to talk to her, Yeah. but you know, she doesn't exactly get to refuse a lawful order. Right. And so when, when I got there and, and I told him, I said, it was, it was, he was new. It was one of his first stops. So, but I'll let you make that call. So, well, I would appreciate it if you just came out and talked to her. I said, okay, cool. So I got there, and uh, he filled me in on why he stopped there and everything. It was completely legitimate, completely legal. And I literally walked up to the car, and I said, Ma'am, you don't have the option to refuse the ticket. Uh, you need to sign for this ticket, or this officer is going to take you to jail. Have a great day. And I walked back to the car, and I said, Go talk to her again. And I got back in my car, and I left. And I told her, I said, you know, I, I'm sorry, I told her, I said, If you need to file a complaint about it or whatever, feel free to call me after it's all done, or you can call my lieutenant. This is who he is, and you can talk to him. So after that was all over, I called for that officer to come meet me. And I said, let me explain something to you. I said, what would have happened if that was a black male gang member? Would you have afforded him the exact same opportunity you afforded her? Or would you have taken him out of the car and taken him to jail? That's unacceptable if you treat people differently based on how they look or how you perceive them. Right. So she has the exact same legal consequences as anybody else you deal with. And if you're going to work for me, that's how we're going to work. Yep. So I'm not playing games with people and I'm not playing favorites based off of what someone looks like or how you perceive their life to be. So you treat every single person you come in contact with the same. So moving forward, if you want to call me every single time somebody doesn't want to sign a ticket, that's fine. So, but at the same time, if you would have ripped somebody else out of the car and taken them to jail, then you're wrong in how you're doing your job. And that's the way I handled stuff like that. Uh, yeah. And and also to explain to to younger officers and just just people in general, humility is not weakness. No, yep. Right. So we just had an episode mm-hmm. about yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Being humble does not equate to being weak. And a matter of fact, you don't make the weak strong by making the strong weak. That's exactly right. I think right. that's a lot of what's going on today. Yep. Uh, so. And you don't you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Uh, I don't want I don't want to put you in a position where you 
you know, say something that you don't, you don't feel comfortable saying, but do you believe that right now within the, that just, just in general, from what you've seen that goes on, do you believe we have a lack of leadership in, in our police departments? Because like you, like you said, that kid probably learned a very valuable lesson from you because you, you took him off to the side and you said, listen, she, and I don't know who the individual was. It might've been an elderly 60 year old white woman that decided she was above the law and didn't need to comply or whatever. But you had a great point there. If that guy was a drug dealer or he was the lead gang leader or whatever, that guy would have been like, dude, I already know you're a scumbag. I'm taking you out, locking you up, stuff like that. Uh, but you have to approach the situation the same way for both of them. Uh, but you, you, you demonstrated leadership, you know, from a higher, higher level in the police force. Do you think that one of the one of the problems that we have right now in some of the police forces, because I did hear that Minneapolis's police force has a history of things like this happening that were questionable. Like, was that necessary? Did you really need to do that kind of stuff? Uh, two years ago, two or three years ago, in Minneapolis specifically, you had a black officer shoot and kill a white female who was from, her parents are from Australia. And just weeks before the uh, Mr. Floyd incident, the city of Minneapolis settled a lawsuit with her parents. By the way, the officer was arrested and convicted of murder, by the way. Hmm. Um, but the city of Minneapolis settled the lawsuit for the largest lawsuit in this municipality in United States history. Wow. No just kidding. weeks before that incident. So my my boss personally is from that area, and he was telling me about it. He said, I think it was, it was absolutely just crazy what happened it was unbelievable unacceptable kind of thing and stuff and and i said well what about all this looting and stuff and he said man i don't agree with it at all but and there was a but there and i was like how can you but that like people are burning stuff down he's he said man to be honest with you the 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 department up here has a history of doing some out of character things that should not be done by somebody who who holds that much power as a a enforcer that you have a lot of power as law enforcement, right? You have the ability to take somebody's freedom from them. literally take somebody's freedom where you stand, right? I can walk up to you today and take your freedom from you. That's how much power I have. Um, you know, and, and I agree that it needs to be something that needs to be taken ex extremely seriously. That's why when people say defund the police, I'm like, are you out of your freaking mind? If anything, we need to make more competition within the police force. We need to fund it more. Make it where people want to become police officers because it's such a prestigious position to be in because mm -hmm. you want the best that are in there because you have that much power. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just I was kind of curious where where you think a lot of that stuff stems from. You think it's the leadership. Um, and, and like I said, you don't have to answer because I know you're active and stuff like that. But do you think that just it's a systemic racism thing or do you think it's just a lack of leadership? So. Okay, there's a couple questions in there, so I'll kind of break them down. One, I will speak directly to the police department I work for, and thankfully we have really solid leadership. Yeah. And so I'm thankful for that. But I think you really have to get into looking at departments on an individual basis mm -hmm. um, because it just, like like you said, I've heard the same thing, like Minneapolis has some real questionable stuff. I don't really know what goes on up there. Sure. Um, so I'm not really going to delve into that, but I will say in Chattanooga, our current leadership is is pretty solid. Yeah. Um, and, and thankfully so. And I, I think if you if you look at Chattanooga in particular, you'll see that's why we've had peaceful protests. That's why we've had the things kind of turn out the way they have mm -hmm. is because of that solid leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think if you really start looking at statistics or different situations, 
you, you kind of get an idea of where there are leadership gaps and where there's not. Sure. Um, when you're looking at uh, statistics, I mean, I'm, I'll point you to the Department of Justice. I'll point you to the FBI. Um, I, I can point you at Manhattan Institute. It's another great place to look. Johns Hopkins University is another great place to look. Mm-hmm. But if you look at like 2019, there's 144 million African-Americans in the United States. How many unarmed black males were shot by police in 2019? 18, 17, nine, nine. nine. Sorry. Nine. Yeah, over so, seven. I mean, do, do we have a systemic problem? I mean, as far as out just killing people, I, I don't think that's the case. Hard for the I, numbers I, I, to back I, that I know up, you're, sure. I know you're trying to, I know you're trying to tiptoe a little bit on that, but that, that is in my opinion, not when you talk about 144 million to nine, would we say nine? I don't know what that percentage is, but if you have a systemic problem, you don't have a 0.008 or whatever it is. I I, I can calculate the percentage. If it's systemic, that that statistics do not support that whatsoever. And that's kind of what I was getting at. Those are four great places to look at statistics, and and you can kind of get a better idea of what's going on. Um, But as far as on the officer side, what do you do when – and I'll give you this. This is what happened to me. The week – my first child was born. I went to three dead baby calls. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so what do, what do you do with that when you get home and your wife is getting ready to have a baby? Um, and and then for an officer to to go say, hey, you know, I, I need some help. Like things aren't well. I mean, you, you you start talking about I personally work a second job so that I can support my family. So if if I get put on, I mean, if I even like twist an ankle and get put on light duty. Well, I can't work my second job now, um, and I may, my cut my pay may get cut to seventy five percent during that time, just depending on what's going on. I mean, it just it gets crazy, and so you've, you've really created a system where people can be afraid to even ask for help, yeah, because uh, because of what the repercussions to them personally can be, and that's not healthy um, for anybody. And they and they've done a lot of work to stem some of that stuff, and, and but there's still they need. They need more advocates to, to fight for those kinds of things. And when you're in a profession where, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of machismo and, you know, chest beating as far as just, you know, we're men type thing. It's not always perceived as the manliest thing to say, hey, you know what? I actually do need some help. Mm-hmm. Or right. like, hey, I, I need a couple of days off or True. I need, um, you know, I need a rest or I need to talk to some or whatever the case is. Right. And so they've, they've really done a lot of work in the last five to 10 years and really breaking through that barrier. And things have gotten a lot better yeah. uh, as far as those things go. And the services offered, like in our department, we have services offered where, where no questions asked. If you say, hey, I need help, then they, they have an entire team dedicated just for that. And it's completely confidential. And I, I think officers have really, at least in our department, have really found out that they can't, they have somewhere to go for help and it's not, you, you know, you're not losing paychecks and extra and all this other stuff right. that you thought you were going to lose. Yeah. And, and so on the front half, that was kind of like the perception. And then on the back half was the reality. Well, and mm. that's, and, and I don't mean y'all, y'all more than welcome to ask, ask questions. I think one of the things that I, I really want people to understand is, you know, one of the, the conversations that I got into, especially with the, the Floyd and the incident that happened in Atlanta like, do you really think that that officer wanted to, to shoot somebody? Do you think that he really wanted to kill somebody? Because that lingers with you, right? You pull a gun and you take somebody's life from them. As a person that's sworn to protect, 
you know, you don't look at that as a macho kind of thing. That lingers with you. Those guys don't want to do that kind of stuff. I guarantee you that kid that ended up shooting that guy in Atlanta, that was the last thing he wanted to do. Hence the 50-minute ordeal that that went on for Light the whole length it. of the – that was the last thing that that guy wanted to do. But it came down to kind of a fight-or-flight situation. The guy just – What's almost asked for it, you know. They don't. They don't want to do that kind of stuff, you know. And I would imagine that it that it's 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 stressful for anybody in that kind of situation, you know. Especially after a situation like that happens, and then when you start talking about the 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 persecution of the guy that did it, that was defending himself. I mean, if you really look at that situation, he was defending himself in that situation. I'm not trying to break it down. I'm not an expert. I'm not. I'm not a lawmaker. I'm not a judge or anything like that. So I'll leave it to them to make those decisions. Uh, but you know, ultimately for me, it all goes back to what you talk about, personal accountability. You know, at, at what point do we stop blaming the police force for one guy that held his knee down on somebody's neck for 15 minutes, whatever it was? At what point do we stop blaming all black people for a gangbanger making a bad decision and fighting the cops? You know, because we could easily look at the Atlanta thing and be like, oh, all black people are thugs. All of them do this. All of them get drunk and pass out in Wendy's drive right. Yeah, well, you can't no. do that just like you can't do it with cops because you have guys like you that walked in there that are sworn to protect their their communities. Um, and, and that's where I think, in my opinion, we miss it. Mm-hmm. Like, at, at what point do we go back to personal accountability rather than this this community thing where we're like, hey, it's 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 the whole police force that's awful, you know, kind of thing. And that, I, I just wanted your take on it because I, I appreciate the insight. I've never been in those situations. I have no idea. I've never been in a situation where I've been able to talk to a kid and say, Hey, listen, dude, just because she's a 60 year old woman that refuses to sign the ticket, she goes to jail. Just like the guy that's the head of the the blood, they would go to jail the exact same way. And we'll talk to him the exact same way. Yeah. You know, and, and I can appreciate that as, as difficult as that is to do. Well, it's a a huge thing that you said. And one of the biggest things I picked up from this whole conversation is that there's a there's there's basically three phases that are all being concentrated onto one phase which is your role is to enforce the laws that were created by other people that are in those positions to create them by voters that put them in those positions so in reality a lot of this tension and and you know pent up hatred or whatever for the way things are going should be redirected to the people that they're voting for you know and and or or their own personal votes for laws that they they can have an actual real influence on you know and that's where it goes back to what we were talking about in you know parts one and part two is unfortunately i think we live in a climate right now especially in our country maybe maybe across the globe but i know in america right now um of certain parties or uh, maybe not even parties maybe just maybe just there's a power hungry struggle of the worst thing that some of those people want is for us to be educated and unified right you know? well, and, and one thing i would definitely caution you against is when you hear any statistic or, or things put out through through mass media those kinds of things don't just take things at face value right oh gosh, search yeah. for the truth and this is yeah. this is what i mean according to the manhattan institute um in new york city African-American minorities make up 13% of the population, but are responsible for nearly 75% of the shootings. Yeah. Now that sounds really, really bad. And what that does is that makes you start thinking that the majority of African-Americans in New York city are criminals. Right. That is not the truth. The truth is they may make up 13% of the population may be responsible for 75% of the shootings, 
but I promise you it's a very small percentage of that 13 of that 13 yep. percent that yeah. are doing the same crime the shootings over over. right yep. and right. but but what For happens sure. is they start throwing information at you mm-hmm. and they actually start conditioning you or leading you to a play I've heard it said before that you know once upon a time, the news would report the truth and you formed your own opinion. Uh, and now the news reports opinions and you have to go find the truth. Right. You've been, you know? you've been listening to our podcast. Yeah. yeah. Listen, that's it. That's exactly what we said. They used to tell you the truth and, and what actually happened. Yeah. And right. then you form your opinion yeah. based on what they tell you actually happened. Now yeah. it's an agenda. Yeah. But the only thing, and, and that's where it's getting to the point now where your local news is about the only thing that's even worth a shit because all the big news media outlets are owned by these big, hedge funds and these individuals that are these um or politicians uh, relatives. well that's yeah but who's who's um god the people that donate to the the politicians um lobbyists oh, yeah, you know yeah. a lot of these individuals own these big time media outlets and stuff so they tell you what you should think rather than what's actually happening you'd almost better off be watching your local news because i mean they're owned by by local means i think in a lot of cases you might be better off just forming your own opinions based on the relationships you have in your own life and the things that are going on in your own life or you know it takes a lot of work but when you hear a study reference go go, read the study go go reference it (laughs) go read it whoa wait a minute ask a little much which which goes into forming your own opinions you may actually have to form it through information that you don't have and I, I think a lot of opinions and stuff are formed. Like when you hear a statistic like that, you form an opinion because you may not have any relationships that even counter that opinion. Yeah. And, and to kind of give you an idea of of the, the types of relationships I have, I, I showed this to Cameron mm-hmm. earlier. So we had a phone call last week just kind of talking about tonight's show. Mm-hmm. And within two hours of getting off the phone, I got a text message from a friend of mine. Uh, and he is a former gang member. He's African-American, former gang member. Ended up, we met because I gave a, gave a presentation at, at his school when he was in college. I gave a presentation, and my initial presentation rubbed him the wrong way because uh, he thought I was going to make light of inner city life and drugs because and, and, I showed a, uh, a satirical video about it. And when I got up and started talking about, hey, like society makes light of this stuff, but it's destroying people's lives. Like You don't get it. And he actually turned his chair around and put his back toward me when the video was playing, it wouldn't even look at me. And as soon as I said that, he turned back around and re-engaged. And that's actually how we met. Nice. Well, mm-hmm. fast forward a couple of years, he ends up being the youth pastor at my church. Nice. And so he took a he took on another church in South Carolina. And at any rate, he sent me this text message and he says, I love you and your life matters too. I know the climate of our country has created tension in Tennessee as well, but God is with you. Thank you for your service. And so I sent back to him, I love you too. I have always considered you a brother. You were created in the image of God. Never allow anyone to tell you otherwise. I am proud of the husband and father that you are. God is going to use you to do great things. I've got your back 100% and I would go to war with you any day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of relationship that he and I have. And that's also the kind of conversation you'll never see on the mainstream media. No. No. You know, because that does not fit into... What they're what, trying to what, push. Well, and, and on the pushed. flip side of that, those are the kind of conversations that have to, that be, have had to be had in those communities. Because yep. yes. we had, and I'll, I'll just be transparent with you, we had a great conversation uh, with Trey after after we had uh, you know the the podcast we did recording. Not, and I'm I'm still kicking myself for not having microphones sitting in front of us when we had the conversation. 
But we walked into my kitchen and and I said, I can't remember what it was. We, we were talking about something, but I was like, why, why does the African-American community appear to always uh, glorify the criminals that are done wrong by the police? It always seems like it's somebody that was doing something wrong that maybe a police officer went overboard with whatever he was doing. But most cases, it was a criminal. You know, even, even with Floyd, what happened to him was absolutely wrong. But the guy was not a saint. You know, the guy, the guy did a lot of things in the past and stuff that he probably should not have done. He, he had methamphetamine on him. He had all these different things um, that, that pointed to the wrong situation and stuff. But I said, well, why do they glorify stuff like that? And why, why, don't, why don't they glorify people that are great in their community, like the Ben Carsons and stuff like that? And, 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 and why is the Uncle Tom statement even thrown around for people like that? Like, wouldn't you want your kids in those communities to look up to people like Ben Carson and stuff? And he said, and he told me something that I'd never even thought about from inside that community because I just, I, I haven't necessarily grown up in that community. He said, you got to understand when the fathers are not in the households, the drug dealers and gang leaders become the fathers. And the last thing they want to see is those guys succeed. They want them to be drug peddlers on the street because they care about as much about them as they do about a trash bag that's on the side of the road. I need you to move my drugs. I need you to do what I need you to do. And if you don't, then I, you're, you're expendable. Um, and I started thinking about that a little bit. And I was like, that is the saddest thing that I've, I've heard in a long time. And to your point, the conversation you had with that man right there that was like, dude, I got your back. Nobody wins this game. I promise you there's a better life out there. Some of them never hear that. And that's so sad, man. Some of those guys, some of those kids grow up in that environment and never see that. They never shake the hand of a cop that's like, listen, son, you can do something great one day. But I think if you look throughout our current society, it's not localized to one community. Uh, I, I, I think that that is a growing trend everywhere. And I'll mm. tell you right now, I was working a homicide uh, in, in the projects and I was walking through talking to some people and I came across a, a young girl came up and asked me if I had a sticker. So uh, we always carry stickers in our pocket or candy or something. So I gave her a sticker and, and oftentimes parents would come over and they would snatch the kid away and take the sticker from them or tell them they don't talk to the police. But, but this mother was different. And so I actually engaged her in conversation and I talked to the little girl and I asked the little girl, I said, what, what is it you want to do? And she gave me a list of a couple of things. And, and I just threw out, I said, well, maybe, maybe you can be president one day. And I kid you not, her mom stopped in her tracks and she looked at me and she said, are you being serious? I said, yeah, I'm being dead serious. Like why, why is that un, unachievable? Like why couldn't you attain that? She said, you're the first person that's ever said something like that to us. Mm. I said, well, I, I have news for you and I'm not being ugly you're hanging with the wrong people if right. I'm the first person that's ever told you right. you can be successful. And see, that truth mm. right there is something that most people would never even let come out of their mouth. But that is an incredible statement to, to just be frank and honest. You're hanging out with the wrong freaking people yeah. if I'm the first guy that ever told you that. Yeah. And I'm telling you that out of love. And that, and that has nothing to do with what someone looks like or where they came from exactly. or anything like that. It has everything to do with how they think about things. Yep. Yeah. And and there's a, a growing trend in our society right now that if you don't look like me or if you're not in a position of power and, and look like me, then I, you know, your, your authority or your power is illegitimate. Right. Mm. And I'm here to tell you that's wrong. Mm -hmm. If on either side of the coin, if you if the first thing you see is race, then you're wrong. Right. There's no way on earth I can look at my children and tell them 
you have nothing to learn from somebody who doesn't look like you. Mm. Yeah. If that person is is making right decisions, is living morally, is, mm. is doing all these, you know, doing the right thing, I, I would encourage my kids, please go go get around them. Man, my best friend in high school, we were on the basketball team together, African-American guy, lost both of his parents before he was out of high school. He lived with his youth pastor and worked at a, a small private Christian school. He worked after school hours cleaning the school to pay his way to go to the private Christian school. Hmm. I mean, an absolutely outstanding person. Yep. And in the face of all odds, you know, and just just to look at people as individuals mm-hmm. and say, you're a good person mm-hmm. because, not because of how you're made, not because of what you look like, but because of how you choose to live, yeah. right? And Well, and I think well, it all stems back to what your father instilled in you in the beginning is to celebrate their individuality. Yeah. And if everybody would adhere to that, yeah, I think it it would impact people from all over because then you can get to know the person because you, you can't judge the book by the, f- the cover. You have to learn who they really are before you can actually say, okay, this is how this person really is. And it's looking past skin deep. It's going into the soul and who the person is character-wise. Yeah. Well, that. and I think you have to look back for our country, some of the founding literature, which says you were endowed with inalienable rights from our creator. And when we get back to understanding that we were all created equally, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It doesn't like our, our, our creator does not make one more valuable than the other, you know, and that's not going to be popular with everybody. And that's not everybody's belief and that's fine. But at some point you've got to start believing in something mm-hmm. that created us equally. Right. Yeah. Even if and we evolved, we evolved equally. Okay. Right. Like, I mean, like as dumb as that is to me, it, it wasn't like this one race evolved differently than the other race. Okay. Like let's stop being stupid. But, but no, I was like, when, when you get into evolution specifically, I, I, I think you open the door for, for problems like that. Well, and what's, yeah. I mean, that's a whole yeah, other yeah, topic. I'm just saying, saying <laughs> what's interesting about know. that is that would be the same side that would anyways. <laughs> um, my like one good question that I would love to ask you is from your perspective, you literally grew in poverty and seen what these guys deal with every single day. Also flip side got success and seen some of that in that society. And then now becoming a police officer for 14 years that you yeah, said or 14 like years. If you were able to wave a magic wand and fix this, where would you start? How would you kind of put a game plan together on both sides of the fence that you could see? Okay, let's start here. So people, from your perspective, yeah, people have to be willing to get uncomfortable, and they have to be willing to reach out to somebody. Uh, it, 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 that's a very, very hard question to answer because in some respects, you can't help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. That's true. And so, um, it's not that people can't change. It's just my belief is that people change when the pain of continuing to do what they do is greater than the pain that it takes to change. Cause all change takes pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people get fed up enough with, with where they are in life, wh- wherever they are, and I'm, and I'm not talking race or a, a lower class specifically. I mean, if you're fed up with middle class and you want to go upper, like you'll, you'll make that change when the pain becomes too great. So when someone desires that change, someone else has to be on the other end of that desire that's willing to get uncomfortable and reach across and say, 
I'll help you. Like, and, and if I'm going to walk through a minefield, I'd rather follow a guy that's already done it. Yep. Right. Um, I, I don't really need you on the sideline. Like, I think you need to go left. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> and so how I'll far left? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Why don't you come out here and you go left? Yeah. Right. Um, and so I'd rather follow the guy that's been through it. Mm-hmm. You know, am I willing to lead someone else through the minefield? And I think that's kind of what that text message between me and, the, and that guy. That's one of those things where he and I, we would meet and we would talk. And I'm telling you, I, through that process, I learned just as much from him as, as I hope that he took from me 100%. and yeah. And, and we, we grew a relationship and he, he looks at me even as a, as a police officer completely differently than he looked at police officers when he was younger. Um, and, and matter of fact, I want to tell you, his brother was murdered. Um, and, and so there was a whole thing with, with that too. And so he understands the the whole insides of that thing. And, and to kind of give you an example from my personal life, or even my profession, um, I worked a, a rape and murder of a 15 year old mm. and it was, it was pretty heinous. Um, she was left on a front porch an entire day. Uh, and the guy that did it involved his two younger brothers, uh, with, with moving the body. And so he gets arrested, pleads guilty, get, gets a life sentence. And two years later, I'm walking through the police department and I see his mother the suspect's mother. And I'm like, Hey, so-and-so like, what's up? And she jumps up, she runs over and she gives me a hug. And my initial thought was, this is real uncomfortable because I put one of her kids in jail for the rest of his life. But she gives me a hug. She asked me how I'm doing, ask her what's up. And the two boys, um, that, that had helped their older brother are now there being interviewed for a crime. Hmm. So immediately in my head, my first thought wasn't, Oh, they're bad people. My first thought was, man, I bet this ties back to the trauma they experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talked to the investigator. I, I got permission to speak to the boys in the middle of this investigation. And I sat down with them. I said, what do you want to do in life? Like, what do you really want to do in life? And they told me, and like, what are you interested in? And they told me what they were interested in. I said, well, all right, here's the deal. We're going to cut a deal right here today. And I, I actually got a piece of paper out and wrote it down and signed my name to it and gave it to them when we cut the deal. So they, they had, prom- and I thought, I said, you can hold me to, like, that is my name. You can hold me to this. And the deal was they had to improve their grades by one letter grade. I don't expect you to be a straight A student, but if you're making C's, I'd like you to try to get B's, right? Um, one of them wanted to play football. I said, I don't expect you to be able to make the team, like just coming out. I said, but you have to try out for the team. The other one wanted to play basketball. I said, you have to try out for the team. You have to stay out of trouble. Like if you get in trouble, deal's off. And at the end of the school year, I will pay out of my own pocket to take you to an Atlanta Hawks basketball game. So that was their thing. They wanted to go see Atlanta Hawks basketball game. I said, all right, we'll go see LeBron play. We ended up not being able to see LeBron. It was a whole other topic, but I couldn't get the day off. So we went and saw the Celtics play. But it was it was a great game. But the day before, one of the brothers got arrested for truancy. Mm-hmm. And so I told him, I said, man, I still love you. But, yeah, yeah. There, there are consequences for your decisions. And I actually took his younger brother instead. But the guy that sent me the text message, he went with us. Mm-hmm. And and the four of us went down to Atlanta. And I can just remember, man, I was driving through Atlanta. They had my windows down uh, in my car. And one of, the, one of the brothers says, I'm the first person in the family to ever see a Porsche in person. There's a Porsche right over there. Oh, and wow. and it, was, it, was, it was nothing. We got, we got them basketballs and, and hats and had a great time. But we really got to spend some one-on-one time with them. And then when I got back to the house, 
uh, we, we took him back and I asked his mom, um, cause I, I did all this stuff on, on my dime. I paid for all of it. And I, I said, you know, do you mind if we pray with you guys as a family before we leave? Cause, uh, he was our youth pastor at our church. That's why I brought him with me. And she's like, actually back here in the back room is my older son. And he and his girlfriend just lost their, their pregnancy, their child. Can you talk to them? So I, I, I kind of completely skipped over this part. Uh, my wife and I had had a stillborn daughter at one, at one time. And this was like two or three months after that took place. Oh, and wow. so, I mean, not only was I going back there to pray for him, but I was back there. I mean, I, I was crying. I'm not a super emotional guy, but I was back there. I was crying with them and explaining like, man, I just went through this, you know, and, and we, we spent about a half an hour talking and I was able to sit down and pray with them. And to me, one of the hardest parts for most people to get over is that takes vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. Most people aren't willing to be vulnerable, right? Yeah. I put this facade up. I'm a police officer. I'm tough. Or I'm whatever. I'm a construction worker. I'm a man's man. I'm whatever it is. Right. Um, they put this facade up. And you have to lower that facade and you have to get to know people as people and as individuals. And you have to become vulnerable if you want to make a difference. I can come in and tell you what to do. Um, and I had this conversation with a, a co-sergeant I had. Just because someone obeys you doesn't mean they respect you. Yeah. Right. So I can come in and tell you what to do, but it doesn't mean you respect me. To respect me, you have to get to know me. You got to meet them where they're at. Yeah. yeah. And so I think be vulnerable, earn respect. Don't come in and demand respect. Right. Earn respect. No, I'd agree with that whole, wholeheartedly. Yeah. And I think we could, I know for me, I'm, I've been pretty quiet over here because I'm just listening and, and I could listen to these stories, not because they're entertaining stories, but, but just because of how much they mean forever. Um, but I do want to get to a point of wrapping up. And I think that's probably a great place to do it because there's some things that you just said that were uber important that I think people can actually maybe find some kind of practical thing in their own life to apply, which are vulnerability, you know, which not being a tough guy, you know, we, we, you know, I had a friend of mine recently, he had a little injury and I was offering him a ride, you know, back from the kickball field. And he was joking about, yeah, I know what you, you might say about me tomorrow if you had to pick me up and, uh, you know, I couldn't make it home on my own. I was like, no, I'd call you a real man because you're okay with being like I can barely walk, you yeah. know? So, like, it's not just about being tough all the time. And I think there's there's certainly a, a barriers that are created nowadays. Um, but also the, the something you said a little bit earlier about, you know, having somebody pulling you along, having somebody, you know, being in that role to show you which way to go, um, that, that is something that we are very passionate about that, that is why we have you here and why we have ourselves here and why we've this, this vision that we feel like we've been given to, um, pursue, which is putting men in a position to where they can help other young men have something to hold on to, you know, and then understanding where, you know, father's day is, is tomorrow. This will release this week, probably a day or two after father's day. We're going to release something uh, along with that about the importance of that father role, the importance of that male figure, and, and how important it is for each of us as males, as men, to work on ourselves, to be everything that we're talking about. Because ultimately, us just sitting around talking about it doesn't accomplish shit. Us living it and us passing yep. it down to the next generation, yep. and not just our own family, but the next generation of people in our community, which you have done. I just want to commend you for everything that you've done to this point in your life. And I know there's even more to come, but it's just, an, it's, it is incredibly humbling thing to sit here and think of 
some of the stuff you've done that you just didn't have to do, but you chose to because you knew that was an important role for you to play for some of these people. So um, I know this has helped people. Do you guys have anything you want to add before I wrap up, JP or Wilson? I'm, I'm good. I think it was great. Daniel, is anything else you want to say on the way on no, the wrapping I this mean, up? I'd just uh, leave you with, with a quote. And as everyone knows they're going to die, but no one believes it. If they did, they would live differently. So we would only that. get one chance. And um, I, I just want to make sure that I use that chance to do everything I can. And I think if we ultimately start caring about other people more than we care about ourselves, then we can fix a lot of this crap that's going on right now. So um, I know this has been valuable. I know it's been impactful. Um, I pray that people truly listen to this in depth and 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 go back and listen to it more than once um if you are a you know consistent follower of ours uh make sure you're spreading the word on this you know if you're listening to this you're hearing this and this is some things that are maybe touching your heart and touching your mind make sure you're sharing it i say this all the time and we talk about it internally but like don't be selfish enough to only grow yourself like like send this out to somebody not for our benefit but because there may be something that could help them you know there really truly could be it's why we're here right um, you can check out some, some more things about what we're doing through our website, shepherdsof.men. You can find, follow us on social media, on the big platforms. Uh, you can, you know, obviously, again, along that same vein of creating a brand and a movement that can truly have an impact on the next generation, um, there is some, some gear through our site that I would encourage you to uh, consider to look at, you know, if you feel like this is something you could get behind. And if it's not, then, then don't look at it. Uh, quite frankly, you know, if it doesn't line up with your values and your beliefs, then then so be it. God, God bless you. And we love you either way. Um, but uh, with that being said, we're going to wrap up. Daniel, again, thank you for being here. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Thank you guys for listening. You've been a part of the movement.